You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. This evening's reading is from Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions, For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives... Your little ones and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray that through this book of Joshua, we might see your kind, gracious deliverance of your people, that you, we uh, might even respond today with strength and with courage because of who you are and what you have promised in your son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray for all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, tonight is a lower elementary night. So if you are a first or a third grader and you've already got a sticker on, we'll see you later. For the rest of you, a uh, few of you who ran a half or a full marathon this morning to the zoo, stick with me here. Uh, maybe pull out your Red Bull or something that you've got in the bag underneath the pew. Uh, let's, let's stay with it, people. All right, it's good to see everyone here tonight. It's so good uh, to be with all of you, even on a somewhat empty stage here tonight. As you heard Rabo say, uh, yeah, Kyle is still in Central Asia. The bickets are gone for good. Well, we'll see him again, but you know, not, not like next Sunday. Jordan is off in another state preaching. Uh, so it's kind of a pared down week, but it is so good to hear the most important voice every Sunday, which is all of you. Uh, singing together. And I just wanted to give you all a good report. Uh, Rabo's already said a little bit, but the Bickets and Kyle with them, they landed just fine. Um, by Thursday, they the Bickets had already opened a local checking account. They had changed their numbers to local Asian numbers. Uh, all of this is happening. Things are maybe a little bit more frustrating than they had hoped, but things are happening and they're settling into their new life, which is pretty amazing. Uh, as I was driving away from the airport on Monday morning, I was just really struck by the fact that in less than 24 hours, I was driving away. They had not yet gotten on their plane or gone through security or, yet, but in less than 24 hours, uh, they would be with all of their worldly possessions halfway around the other side of the world. In centuries past, a trip like that would have taken months, perhaps certainly weeks, maybe even years, depending on how far they're going and how long the stops would be. It would have taken a lot of planning to manage and pull off. And it would kind of make more sense as you were moving about around the other side of the world. You have months to travel where you begin to slowly see language and culture change as you travel. But they had like an hour and a half plane flight to Dallas where you get off the plane and it's Texas, so things are different. But it's not that much different, relatively speaking, right? Then within the time that they could watch four to five movies, they were in London, where they got off the plane for a few hours and people speak differently, certainly. Um, but you can know what to expect by way of language and perhaps by food and culture. And then four to five hours later, after that, they walked off a plane and they are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Different language, different dress, different culture, different politics, different religious expectations, and on and on and on and on. But it's wild though, right? When they drove away from their house, certainly uh, flights could get canceled, things could get delayed. But on Monday morning, when they got in their car from their house to drive to the Sunport, that as long as they got to the airport on time and they brought the right passports or tickets or phones, they knew that by tomorrow, they could be confident that they would walk off of an airplane and be in Asia. Totally different. Everything about their life is different. Wild stuff. The book of Joshua is about confidence in the promises of God, that he will deliver his people to his presence. And all that they have to do is trust him. All they have to do is trust and obey. All they have to do is like get to the gate on time. 
right? And he will deliver them to a different reality, to a better reality. But admit it, if you have any familiarity with this book, what do you think of? When you think of the book of Joshua, what do you think of? I think all of you, if you have, we're going to say anything, even though you're cowards and you didn't say it, is Jericho. It's just the, the battle of Jericho. There's like yelling and blowing horns and falling walls and yada, yada, yada. But what in the world does that have to do with the rest of the book of Joshua? And what does the book of Joshua have to do with the rest of the Bible? And then what does the book of Joshua having to do with the rest of the Bible have to do with the rest of our lives? Joshua is about trusting God to deliver what he has promised, how we are to live in light of those promises and what we can expect in the face of those promises. This is a book about hope. It is a book about faith, about obedience, about courage. It is a book about grace and mercy, about justice and judgment. It is a book about God's people living in God's place under God's rule. That's in fact what we've titled this series, the the next few months, God's people in God's place, a place of peace. And so tonight, in introducing this book in chapter one, I just want to convince you of one thing. We're going to do a lot of table setting here to make sure that we're all on the same page for the next few months in understanding the context of this book. But in and around all the table setting, I want us to walk away here believing one thing, that the certain promises of God should motivate courageous lives in his people. The certain promises of God ought to motivate courageous lives in his people. We're going to see this play out and trickle down tonight in three movements. First, that God commands Joshua, but then Joshua commands the people. And then, thirdly, the people respond to Joshua, and by doing so, they're responding to God. So God commands Joshua, Joshua commands the people, and the people respond. So first of all, God commands Joshua here. What you just heard Adam read actually isn't the beginning of Joshua 1.1. Our English translations take out the actual first word of this book, and that word is and. If you have your Bible open in front of you, you see after the death of Moses, really and literally in the Hebrew, it says and after the death of Moses. In most of the narrative books of the Old Testament, and is the very first word because it is, it is the continuing story of God's faithfulness to people, to his people. And it is the continuation of what's come before it. And what comes before it, before the book of Joshua, in the five books that come before it, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in those books, God has created humanity to dwell with him. In the first two chapters, in a garden, but his people reject him and they continue to devolve into deeper and deeper wickedness and idolatry. Eventually, out of that wickedness and idolatry, he calls one man, Abraham, to covenant himself to this man that that through his family, God might once again dwell with people in peace and he might bless the world through that family. And even though this family then becomes enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, God rescues them and through his servant Moses, he gives the people a law the law. It is a code of living by which the people can know and love God and they can know and love one another. They are to be, this people, this now huge family, this people are to be a shining image on earth of who God is to clearly show the character of their God and of his covenant faithfulness. And so Moses, up until this point, has been leading the people. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, the book that is just prior to Joshua, 
Moses has been giving and reiterating the law a new time to a new generation as they are finally preparing to prepare, preparing to enter this law of promise that God had long ago, 500 years ago, promised to Abraham. And so we read in 1.1, And after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Moses is dead. Now question, anyone know who was president after Abraham Lincoln? A couple of you, maybe. Andrew Johnson, because he was a terrible president, all right? But anybody know who was prime minister after Winston Churchill? Nobody, maybe Daniel Bruce. Anybody know the Roman emperor after Caesar Augustus? I don't think any of you. It is a tough act when you are to follow a huge and historically influential leader. And so right away here in Joshua 1.1, this is presenting a time of immediate potential instability, potential chaos amongst the people. Will this thing, after everything that we have just seen, that has gotten us up to the point of the end of Deuteronomy, where the people are on the precipice of entering the land, will the whole thing fall apart when Moses is gone? But now we're introduced to Joshua. This person, Joshua, if you've been reading the the Bible up until this point, he's not a complete unknown to us. In Exodus 17, he's one of the the two guys that goes up with Moses and holds Moses' arms up on the mountaintop as the Israelites are fighting the Amalekites. In Exodus 24, he's right there with Moses at Sinai, and he's one of the 70 elders that feasts with God on the mountaintop. In Numbers 13, Joshua and Caleb, they are the only two of the spies who go into the land of Canaan and they report back that the strength of the Lord will deliver this land to the people. In Numbers 27, Moses publicly commissions Joshua as the heir apparent. He is the one, he tells Israel, who will lead them after he dies. And then in Deuteronomy 34, 9, just uh, the page before Joshua 1, we read that Joshua was full of the spirit of wisdom and the people listened to him just as they listened to Moses. So it's a good start here. And when we read Joshua 1.1, we're like, okay, we can do this. Come on, Israel. Come on, Joshua. And it starts well. God tells Joshua to cross the Jordan River, an event that we will cover in several weeks together. And that everywhere that Joshua walks within the clear borders of the land, God says, I have given you. He says, do what I am telling you to do. And end of verse 5, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And it's because of this, because of God's certain promises, and because God promises to go with Joshua, that then, therefore, verse 6, now Joshua, because I am giving you this land, because I am going with you, because the people will listen to you as they listened to Moses, therefore, verse 6, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers and to give them. It is certain I will do it. Just show up to the airport on time and this will happen. Now, we don't quite know why God so many times needs to tell Joshua to be strong and courageous. We don't know if he was a naturally or overly timid or fearful guy. He didn't seem to be afraid of the people of Canaan when he and Caleb spied out the land at Numbers 13. He may have just been nervous that people wouldn't listen to him. 
You know, I'm not Moses. Who am, who am I to, to tell them who you are, God, just as Moses was initially afraid of doing the same thing. But God repeats this over and over and over again to Joshua. In verse 6, be strong and courageous. In verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. In verse 9, be strong and courageous. And then in verse 9, do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now we'll swing back around to how and if any of this applies to us. But before we do, what should Joshua's courage look like? What does God mean when he says, be strong and courageous? What is he supposed to, what is that supposed to play out like in his life? He is to be strong and courageous, but in verse 7, how? Verse 7, God says, only be strong and very courageous. How? Well, by being careful to do according to all the law that, all the law that, my, that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Joshua, in leading the people in strength and in courage, we might summarize, is to lead them in strength and in courage in four ways, and they all have to do with God's word. He is to know God's word, he is to speak God's word, he is to meditate on God's word, and he is to obey God's word. All of these things are how he is to, in strength and courage, lead them. Knowing, speaking, meditating, and obeying God's word, the book of the law. Now, in years past, we've spent time in Exodus and Leviticus, considering how the law wasn't like a prescription of thought or action for every single possible human interaction or encounter. It's not like a flowchart or a fortune-telling roadmap of life that every single uh, decision or every possible conflict that you have in life, you need to consult what this or that law might tell you to do. Sometimes that was the case with very specific commands and rules for life, but it, it just isn't long enough or comprehensive, comprehensive enough to account for every single possible scenario in our lives. Instead, the law was a starting place window into understanding the heart of God a way to understand and know the character of God and his heart for his people. Now, at a very minimum, that meant obedience to what was given. But later prophets and the Lord Jesus would make clear that you could miss the entire point of the law with a mere wooden or robotic obedience if you were, at the same time, missing or ignoring the weightier matters like justice and mercy and righteousness and faithfulness. And so... All of this is what Joshua, in strength and in courage, is to lead the people in. They have just received the law for a second time in Deuteronomy, and it is the law, the word, the word of God given to Moses, now in the hands of Joshua, that he is to lead them in. He is to lead them in knowing God's word. You cannot consider, you cannot obey, you cannot love or do anything else with God's word unless you first know it. He is to lead them in speaking God's word, where God says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Because of Joshua's deep knowledge of the word, God's word, God's language becomes Joshua's language. He should be speaking what God has spoken in leading the people. He is to lead them in meditating on God's word. This is where understanding the weightier matters of the law comes from, in quiet and in deep reflection, understanding who is this God who has spoken these things? What does this particular law reveal to me and to us, his people, about God's character? What is he like? 
What do his words mean? What do they mean for us? And Joshua is to lead them in obeying God's word, to not stray to the right or to the left, but staying on the line of God's word for them. What, what good is God's commandment or his commandments to us if they like evaporate? If God's word comes to us, but they evaporate before they translate into, out into our hearts or our hands. These kinds of reminders are all over the book of Joshua. We're going to see that before and after the conquest of the land, the people will consecrate themselves to the worship of God alone, to the obedience of God. And for the most part, in this book, the people of God do. For the most part, they do obey the Lord. But they are continually reminded, Joshua, over and over and over again, does just what God tells him to do in chapter 1. Speak, lead, meditate, uh, contemplate together, and obey my word. Now, one of the most interesting reminders that Joshua gives is near the end of this book in chapter 23, verse 11. It's something very similar to what God says here in chapter 1. But Joshua tells the people, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Be careful. Pay attention. Now, I don't think many of us think about loving the Lord your God as something that we need to be careful about. Love, we might think, is something that we can't control. Our hearts, our worship just goes off in a million different directions. There's nothing we can do about it. Just think about how we talk about romantic love. It's not something that we do. It's something that happens to us. I fell in love. I'm a passive agent in this. There was nothing I could do about it. I'm pretty sure Joshua would disagree that the love of God requires carefulness, requires thoughtful attention, requires diligence and discipline in understanding and meditating and obeying God's word. And the flip side of Joshua's commandment is that if we are not careful, that we will not love the Lord. In other words, loving God, just as we've said, takes intentionality. We're not passive agents. We become active preachers to our hearts instead of passive listeners. We are careful and attentive in what is true and what is not true. Of course, loving God is not just those things, is not just intentionality, is not just effort or discipline. We don't love God by just disciplining ourselves. In Joshua 22, he says this to the people, only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, but then this, and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. He, he could not be less interested in wooden and robotic obedience. He wants the people to give God their hearts, their souls. Loving God is not just a discipline. It is your heart and your soul. It is not just discipline, but get this though, it's not less than discipline. It's not less than diligence. It's not less than careful attentiveness. And I think what Joshua is saying is my point here, that you don't stumble into loving God. You don't just accidentally stumble into holiness. You are careful to cultivate means in your life of reading the Bible, of praying, of meeting with other Christians, of speaking 
God's word? How many times do we hang out and we want to keep things light and we don't want to be that guy, so we don't want to get things too serious, so we avoid any Bible talk, just keep it at the sports and the weather and we're good. But God wants Joshua to be a Psalm 1 man, you know what I mean? A Psalm 1 man who is a tree planted next to streams of water, just soaking up and absorbing God's word so that we might grow into becoming trees of shade and of life to those around us. And so in all of this, God commands Joshua. He is preparing him to lead God's people into God's land so they might live under God's rule, that they might grow and flourish and become collectively as a people, a giant tree providing shade and life to those around them. This is a theme that we're going to continue to trace and develop throughout the summer. But if this is what and how God commands Joshua, let's now see that in his mediator role, in his like go-between role, Joshua then takes what God has commanded him and he now commands the people. So secondly here, Joshua commands the people. In verse 10, we read this, and Joshua commanded the officers of the people. He told them, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days, you are to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Like Moses before him, Joshua is delegating his leadership and authority out and then down. He can't meet personally with every single person in the nation. And so he is giving his commands to go out to the people. And he is having the people, the entire nation of Israel, get ready, prepare. This moment, what he is telling them of crossing the Jordan River is what they've been waiting for for 500 years. 500 years ago was like Martin Luther, like putting his 95 theses on the door. 500 years ago is like when Cortez is invading Tenochtitlan or Mexico City. That's a long time ago. A long time ago. That is what they have been waiting for when God came to Abraham in Genesis 12 and promised them this place. This is the moment that they are to cross the Jordan. The coming events, what we are about to see in the coming chapters, are what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses all looked toward. A new land, a land like Eden, where once again God would dwell amongst his people in peace. But hang on. Just a second here. It's not like they're about to walk into an empty Garden of Eden. Lots of animals, foxes and panda bears and stuff, just waiting and inviting and welcoming Israel to come and dwell with us and our God in peace. What's the problem? There's already people living there in Canaan. The Canaanites. The Canaanites is just a, a large umbrella word for lots of smaller tribes of people living in the region. And this reality, the reality that God is telling his people to go in and take the land, possess the land, and by taking and possessing, essentially what we read initially is what appears to us to be a massacre, a potential genocide, an effort of ethnic cleansing. All of those realities has caused this book and many other places in the Bible to become a major stumbling block for some today. They read passages like this and conclude that this Old Testament God is no different than a murderer or a war criminal, a cosmic war criminal. 
committing genocide and ethnic cleansing. God is a moral monster. He is therefore untrustworthy. Or perhaps God would never have commanded something like this. And Joshua and all of these fallen uh, ancient people misunderstood God's intentions and expectations for them. Or God was like this in the past, but he has fundamentally changed his nature now in the coming of Jesus. But I don't think any of those conclusions are satisfactory. None of them. I'm not going to give you a, a full-out defense of the so-called genocide of the Canaanites tonight. We've got many weeks to more deeply think about all of this, but let me take just a minute to perhaps uh, do my best to briefly ease your mind. But here's the thing. Ultimately, I might not ease your mind. Uh, these accounts should actually make you squirm. You should never read this with your arms raised, like cheering on the slaughter of the Canaanites or the people of Jericho. But unlike some who approach difficult texts like these with like a raised eyebrow of cynicism, what in the world? This is terrible. I don't believe this. I don't trust God. I don't trust Joshua. I don't trust the Bible. I'm going to try to lead us with a first guiding principle, not with cynicism, but with trust that God is good. When we open a book like this of Joshua, this is our fundamental foundation that we build upon. God is good. I don't quite understand this, but God is good. God is always good. God is always wise and good. God is always wise and righteous and just and good. God is love. Even if I really need to meditate, even if I really need to study and ask and read and pray, God is good in a difficult, making me squirm book like this. So there's much to say about the cities that Israel destroyed as perhaps being strategic and political military outposts. And that driving out the Canaanites also meant giving the Canaanites ample time to flee. These aren't like unannounced drone attacks. And that God gave Canaan plenty of time to repent and to be saved. Rahab, we'll see next week, he'll, she'll tell the spies that fear had fallen on the land, indicating that many had already fled to these cities or fled from these cities. Really, and when we talk about cities, really we're talking about actually pretty small villages, very specific military outposts. And Israel is to attack those targeted places and then drive out the rest of the Canaanites. They are not enacting whole-scale whole slaughter. Now more on that, and I think I'll actually perhaps include one or two really helpful blog posts for us in the weekly email this week. But why, why is God driving out the Canaanites? You may not remember, but let's think back to Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant. Remember the smoking torch and pot, like floating through the halved and bloody animals? Anyone remember what God told Abraham about the Canaanites in Genesis 15. If you want to put your finger here in Joshua 1 and flip back over to Genesis 15, beginning in th verses th verse 13, and then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is their time in slavery in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation, Egypt, that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers, Abraham, in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here, the land of Canaan, in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God tells Abraham that he isn't going to give them the land yet because the sin of the Amorites or the sin of the Canaanites is not bad enough 
to yet warrant their utter judgment. God is patient and merciful for over 400 years, desiring the repentance of the Canaanites. But nevertheless, they continue in their wickedness and it gets bad. It gets real bad in Canaan. Let me read you this brief summary. God was using the Israelites as his sword of judgment. This is not God just looking around at random and destroying a people. The cultures that were invaded were abysmally dark, notorious for their rampant injustices toward the weak and the poor. They were conquerors and bloody bullies who soaked the land in blood and death. These were not peaceful monasteries in Tibet that we're talking about here. Their worship was corrupted to the point that it involved bestiality, temple prostitution, which likely involves sex slavery, and most horrifying of all, child sacrifice. We have archaeological digs with pits full of the skulls of children these cultures offered up to the flame. Just consider Rahab the prostitute. How weird is it that she was willing for invaders to come? No, for her and for those like her, this was not an invasion. But in many ways, this was liberation. God was using his people to liberate the weak and the poor from wickedness, from evil and injustice. We need to understand that this was actually not a genocide or ethnic cleansing as we think of today. God's sparing of Rahab enough is for us to understand that. She was a Canaanite and she was not destroyed. Apart from God's judgment of Canaan, this was a time and location-specific strategic move of God. God that that God would give Israel no taste for conquest or for empire building. He would give them just a little strip of land about the size of New Jersey and no more. Don't keep going from there. In fact, all of of the God-sanctioned wars in the Old Testament from here on out would be that of defensive wars. Now, there's much more to say, but the reason that these texts remain just really, really applicable to us today is because it is a foretaste of what is to come. The New Testament describes the judgment of those outside of covenant with God in similar ways as that the judgment he brings here in Canaan. That none deserve God's mercy. And God is patiently and mercifully waiting for, the, for repentance. As Paul says in Romans eleven twenty five, 25, he's waiting and patiently waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in to come to repentance and to be part of the covenant people of God, that these wicked Gentile Canaanites might repent. You and me might come to the God of Israel, might come to the God of Jacob and Isaac and of Joshua and of David. Go back to Joshua 1. When you heard Adam read this whole bit in uh, verses 12 through 15, that's probably pretty confusing about Reuben and Gad and Manasseh and all that stuff, unless you've read Numbers 32. I told you we're going to do some table setting here, all right? In Numbers 32, the people have wandered up from Egypt, which is like the very northeast corner of Africa, and they've wandered up and they've come under the land, like the land of Canaan is, is here. They've come up under it, and they are now to the east of Canaan. They are to the east of the Jordan River, which is the easternmost border of Canaan. And that place to the east of the Jordan is where much of Numbers and all of Deuteronomy has taken place. And in Numbers 32, the tribes of Reuben and of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, which by the way, if you're new to the Bible, these 12 tribes that Joshua tells us about, and we're going to spend lots of time getting to know in these next few months, these 12 tribes are the names 
of Jacob's 12 sons. Each of them becomes one of the 12 tribes, except for Joseph. There is no tribe of Joseph. But Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are known as the half-tribes. There's no tribe of Joseph. There's a half-tribe of Manasseh and a half-tribe of Ephraim. So there's kind of 13 tribes, if we wanted to count all the names. No Joseph, but a Manasseh and Ephraim. But with the priestly Levites not getting an allotment of land, we'll see the land eventually get divided into 12 parts with Manasseh and Ephraim. But back in Numbers 32, as Israel was over here on the east side of the Jordan River, before they had come into westward into the land of Canaan, while they were over there, the tribes of Reuben and of Gad and of the half-tribe of Manasseh, they all come to Moses and they say, hey, you know what? This ain't so bad. We kind of like it here, over here on the east side of the river. And Moses, after they ask him, hey, can we just stay here? We don't want to, like, I think the land over there on the west side of the river would probably be great, but this looks great too. Can we just stay here? And Moses says to them, yes, you can do that. But here's the thing. If you stay here, you're going to really, really discourage the rest of your countrymen. You're going to discourage them that you won't join them for the conquest, for the entering of the land. You're going to make them do the hard work of trusting in God's promises, and you're just going to kick up your feet here with like the frozen drinks with the umbrellas on the east side of the river and not do anything with them. But they say, no, no, no. If you'll let us have this land, we promise when the time comes, we'll go with them and we'll go into the land and do all of the hard stuff with them if we can just come back and take this land when it's all over. So here in Joshua 1, Joshua is reminding these two and a half tribes, he is reminding them of their promise to Moses to go with the rest of the people and that they might ensure the inheritance of the land. And Joshua says at the end of verse 13, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land, the, the land over here on the east of the river. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over arms before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return back over the Jordan to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. Now, while they could say to Moses and then later here now to Joshua, say, you know what? Never mind. We're good. We're good with our feet up and the cucumbers on our eyes and the frozen drinks with the, um, with the umbrellas. They, should, they say no. They will not rest until rest comes for all of God's people. They deny their own security and comfort in order to bring about the security and comfort of all. What a lesson. We have so much to consider about what it means to be God's people and God's place in this book, but this one right off the bat is so fundamental. The people of God are a plural people. The people of God are not just a collection of individuals. When one suffers, all suffer. When one rejoices, all rejoice. And as we'll see with Achan in chapter 7, the sin of one has horizontal consequences for all. Who we are individually affects all of us. And like these two and a half tribes, right off the bat, might we say, no, we will not rest in peace and security until peace and security is achieved for all. Might we deny ourselves for the good of all of God's people. They are a united people 
all brought out of their slavery under the blood of the slain lamb that death might pass over them in Egypt and might bring them to life and peace. There is no claim of superiority here of any of God's people. They are all an equal recipients of the grace and kindness of God. So they will fight for each other. They will give time for each other. They will encourage and correct each other as the people of God. And so God has commanded Joshua to be a person of the word, a person of strength and courage because of the promises of God, because what God has certainly promised, Joshua can respond in courage. But then Joshua has then commanded the people to be that people too, to be a people who are now right here in chapter one, preparing, to be a people of preparation, to be a people of care for one another in love and in faithfulness. And lastly, now the people respond. In verses 16 through 18, we see a response. Now this isn't all the people. This isn't all of the whole nation of Israel, all 12 tribes responding. What we're reading here are the tribes of Reuben and of Gad and have half Manasseh, but they respond favorably to Joshua. Verse 16, and they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your word, whatever you command him, shall be put to death only. And then they say, just as God had told Joshua, they tell Joshua, only be strong and courageous. Now, again, if this kind of death penalty thing sounds harsh, hang in there with us. But all of this that I just read from these, the response of these two and a half tribes is really great, is really encouraging, is overly optimistic. And by and large, this whole book is really optimistic. By and large, this whole book goes really well. We might say that this book is probably the most optimistic and maybe like obedient book in the entire Old Testament. Things go well, by and large. And yet, we read this near the end of chapter 21. In verses 43 through 45 in Joshua 21, and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn it to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. This is very optimistic. Things are really going well here. And Joshua 21, 45 should be of great comfort to you. Where not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed, that all had come to pass. Not one word of a promise that God makes to you fails. While we are not Israel waiting to have land promises fulfilled to us, God will fulfill every new covenant promise that he has made to us. Promises like in Romans 8:28, that we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. How difficult is that promise to believe? Very. That is a difficult promise to believe. And yet the sure and certain promises of God should give us strength and courage to believe it. Or a promise like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. How difficult is that promise to believe? Very. 
And yet not one word of all of the good promises of God, all of the good promises that he has made to you in his word will fail. All will come to pass. Including this timeless promise that he gives to Joshua in verse 9. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This promise is reiterated and confirmed by Jesus to his disciples as he is ascending to heaven. He says, lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. I will not forsake you nor depart from you. And he is leaving them in their advancement, advancing the kingdom of God, not in a narrowly uh, geographic specific location, the small strip of land like New Jersey, that God might dwell with a specific ethnic people, but that he is sending out his people into the entire world where God might dwell, not with an ethnic people, but with all people. God's new covenant people have also been brought out of slavery and they are being prepared to dwell with the Lord forever in a settled place of his peace and of his presence. And yet we, like Israel, are still plagued by sin. And so in Hebrews 13, we read Joshua 1 quoted here, not in preparation for battle with a sword, or as Paul would say, against flesh and blood, but against spiritual darkness. And what is the spiritual darkness in Hebrews 13? Things like covetousness, wanting what others have, things like discontentment, not being satisfied with what God, who God is or what he has given. Instead, Hebrews 13.5 says this, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, Joshua 1, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a weird thing to say, right? That's a weird application. Hey, don't love money because of Joshua 1. But God, since God has said, I will ne ne neither leave you nor forsake you, God is with us. He is our possession. He is our inheritance. We have him now and forever. Hey, keep yourself free from the love of money. Be strong and courageous as you fight that battle until he comes. And while the battle that we fight is no longer a physical one with swords and spears, we are just as in need of God's presence. We are just as much in need of courage and light of God's promises. And thankfully for the Christian, this side of the cross, his presence will not leave us despite our sin. How? Because now it is not the Lord will fight for you. Now it is rather Jesus has fought for you. He has fought and won. Because of Jesus' atoning death and work as our Passover lamb, because of his perfect obedience as God's son, because of his full devotion to God when we were incapable of full devotion, he makes us right before God and then seals us by his Holy Spirit. And because the battle is won, because Jesus has fought for you, might we respond in faith? Might we respond in strength and in courage, being strong and courageous in our fight against sin? Being strong and courageous in our fight for contentment and faith? Being strong and courageous in our carefulness to obey God and to love him with our heart and our soul, being strong and courageous in our bringing of the gospel of grace to our neighbors and to the nations. And yet, the problem with the book of Joshua, although it's fairly optimistic, it doesn't end that way. Despite all of their affirmations towards obedience, like we've just seen in chapter 1, at the end of the book, in his last sermon, Joshua tells the people that they will ultimately show themselves to be incapable of obedience. They're full of excitement. They're full of zeal. They're full of passion for the Lord. And he says, sorry, guys, that ain't going to last. That's a downer. 
This little prophetic word is like a small rain cloud growing on the horizon so that by the time we turn the page on Joshua to Judges 1, it will be an all-out dark thunderstorm. The people have rebelled and given themselves to foreign gods. They are no longer devoted to him and they are incapable of obedience. This book of Joshua was like a seven or eight year flash in the pan of obedience and of righteousness. What the people need is a new Joshua, someone who shares Joshua's name, literally. The Greek version of the Hebrew name of Joshua of Yeshua is Jesus. The name Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus translates to God saves. That Jesus might come to save from slavery and sin, but to save to a life in the spirit, not a life of flash in the pan obedience. That's here one generation and gone the next. Lives that are still in weakness and suffering and loss and sin, but lives of contentment and joy and peace and perseverance. We've got a long way to go in this book. It's deep, it's heavy, it's hard, it's good. I am so confident of what the Lord will do in us and through us in Joshua as we understand more and more of what it means to be God's people in God's place, in his presence, a people of his presence. Might he make us inform us through this book. Keep reading. Just start reading it over and over and over again. I think you can read this in a couple of hours. Uh, you can for sure read it in... Uh, in a week. If you can't get to that, just read Joshua 2 before next week. That's what we're going to get through next week, but it is a good book and it is for our good. Let's pray that it might be. Our Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who has fought for us, that you have led your people out in battle like you, like David, Lord Jesus, have gone out in front of us while we were weak and fearful and cowardly hiding. You went to fight on our behalf, our representative warrior to fight and conquer over the effects of sin and of Satan and of our selfishness, that you might deliver us from evil, that you might deliver us from slavery, and that you might deliver us to your presence, that you might deliver us to uh, life in the spirit. Might this book transform the lives of who we are individually and transform the lives of who we are collectively, your plural people, the people of God, made up small in small ways in just this local body, but part of your wider body, the people of God, the church that spans through across borders and across time and space. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www dot Christchurchabq.com